This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. I've got John Hitler on the line with us. He's the author of The Motivation Trap. He's a transformational business coach. And today, we're going to talk about motivation. And I know for many of the listeners on the show, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, leaders, uh, motivation can be a big challenge, both internally and externally. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. So what prompted you to get into this space that you wanted to talk about motivation? What, what, was, what was the prompts that you had to, to really drive this forward? Yeah, it's funny. It was kind of generated by clients um, when I would work with, I work with a lot of CEOs, do one-on-one CEO coaching. And I'd say, you know, what are your biggest challenges? And it consistently made the list. They'd say, you know, I just don't know how to keep my troops motivated. I just can't keep my team members motivated on a day-to-day basis. And that to me seemed odd because I kind of wanted to puke on their shoes. Really, I was like, why are you motivating people on a day-to-day basis? Essentially, what you've made a contract with them is that if they came in with a bad night's sleep and they got in a fight with their spouse on the way out and somebody flipped them off on the freeway and so they're not motivated, that becomes your problem? Nope. Um, so I, I've worked with the subject a lot and my, my premise is that you, know, you, you, you have the same thing. You may not have gotten a great night's sleep last night and guess what? You still show up and do work appropriately, professionally at a high level, whether or not you're in the best mood, whether or not you got a great night's sleep, whether or not your kids are struggling in school, you, you do that in spite of being, if you will, highly motivated or not so well motivated. Yeah, and we see it all the time where you know people are coming into work and you know their washer dryer is broken down. They need to figure out a time to get it done, or like you mentioned, you know there's issues going on at home. You name it. There's all these things that people bring in. We like to call it you know baggage. You know that they're bringing yes. in. So, so they're dealing with that. And as a manager or an employer, we may or may not know about those things. And what will happen is we'll try to motivate. But we're trying to motivate in a way that isn't going to match up with the type of um, quote unquote cheering up that that employee may need. But again, as an employer, what you know, what's your role? Who are you? You know, what are you supposed to be the cheerleader for the organization, or are you supposed to create uh, the right environment for people to be able to do their job at the best of their ability? And that's that's where it is. That doesn't mean you can't be you know, a human. And if someone's not right, or they're not feeling well, you can you know, ask them how they're doing and, and just be noticing things like that. But as far as a leader is concerned, going through every day and, and trying to be the cheerleader and rah-rah and get everybody motivated, um, all that's going to do is going to make that leader have some extremely high stressful situations, potentially burn out. And then all of a sudden that organization has lost their leader because they were spending all their time and energy and focus trying to rally the troops and cheer them up instead of coaching them and leading them. It, it's, it's, the word I use is it's exhausting. Oh, to be yeah. the team leader or the CEO or the HR manager or the 
the even the member of the team and hold that role if you allow it you've made a contract with the other person that every day that you walk in and you're not feeling it i will step in and help and you go not it's a full-time job it's a 911 based job every time you need it you dial 911 and i rush in it's a bad contract mostly because it's exhausting it's a full-time exhausting role and you really have a choice. You could do that. You could take on that role. Or you, you alluded to it. You could build an atmosphere and a culture where great work or mastery or, um, or high professionalism, however you want to say it, um, positive attitude can take place because you've built that as a permanent structure or a term, permanent cultural structure. And then you don't worry about the two days a week that I come in and my you know, six month old didn't sleep through the night. So I'm working on a half tank of gas. I'm not highly motivated that day, but you know what? I walk in, I'm with professionals. We're going to do great work regardless. You, you really have a choice. And I, of course, I'm firmly in the camp that you choose building a great culture as opposed to motivating, which can be either positive incentive base or negative, which is, well, we're, you know, we take away things. Um, you see this more with kids. Can't play video games unless you do your homework. Mm. Doesn't make the idea, now you've connected homework to punishment. Ugh, not a very good thing for your brain. No, and that, that always triggered me as a child too. And my parents, thankfully, were ones to say, okay, let's, instead of a punishment thing, they, they framed it this way. The sooner that we can get the homework done, the more time that you will have to play outside and video games or whatnot. Now, when I was a kid, it was Atari 2600 and in television, uh, we're, we're basically the game machines. Yes, kids, that's how old I am. Um, so, you know, and I would play those, but, you know, I was, I didn't really have an issue being motivated to get my schoolwork done because I wanted to get it done. I, because I looked at it as, okay, this is something that I'm responsible for and I need to get it done. And I did it. Now, most kids, I should say most kids, that's a blanket statement, but many kids, um, you know, aren't necessarily thinking that way. Uh, so it's, it, it's interesting, uh, that you use that analogy, but it makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I, you know, we always use the analogy, uh, in, in some of the clinics that I've been with, you can motivate with a carrot or a stick. And, you know, the stick analogy doesn't create the right type of culture environment. You want it to be one where people can come into work and feel like they're making a contribution and will be at least satisfied with their role. You know, long term, they may not want to be there in that role. They may have other dreams or aspirations and what they want to do. But at the end of the day, you want them at least to have a culture where they can be and there's understanding of you know different things, but everyone comes prepared and they're going to give their best professional effort. Whether or not you know they're not feeling well or something's going on, you know they're going to they're going to at least attempt to do it. And yeah, there, there's going to be days that are going to be stronger than others, but at least you know when you're a professional and you come into work, do the work and do it to the best of your ability with what you have, and everything will take care of itself. Yep. Totally, totally agree. So, so yeah, I was going to say, what's some other challenges that you've discovered when you're working with executives when they have to make this mind shift of trying to motivate uh, their team to 
creating an environment where you know the motivation is something that comes within uh, within the staff or you know with the people that they work with. It's um, if you it's a great question. If you look at most organizations, um, they have some version of core values or their operating principles. What we find with with organizations that are struggling with motivation generally speaking, their core values are not very well done. And by that, I mean, it doesn't mean that their um, objective or their intention was poorly done or they rushed through it. But many organizations use, two, they make two fundamental mistakes. One is they have way too many core values. So then nobody remembers any of them because there's too many. But the bigger one, so we suggest if they can have one core value and that's controversial. But if you have one core value, it has to solve every possible scenario. And that's why we recommend one. Oftentimes, people end up with three, and that's fine. But the, sec- the second recommendation, and it solves the motivation problem, is to have the core values be spoken as commands or directives, like you'd see in the military. Now, the military is not known as a highly uh, like aspirationally motivating place. But if you're in boot camp, Never will you have a drill sergeant or a a basic training sergeant that says, would you please do 20 push-ups? No, it's drop and give me 20. It's a command because the military works on commands. When the commands um, reflect the core values and the intention and the aspiration of our organization, you, you drop motivation at that point. I can give you an example. I've got a gaming company in the Bay Area. Um, I'm in Silicon Valley. What they wanted was, it was their second go around. Great, they, they did successful games, sold it, and this was their second uh, venture-backed company. The first one had cultural problems. It was based on talent. They, did, they, they bought highly talented people, but they didn't build a culture, so they fought. Let's, let's leave it at that. Second time, they said, we want to have more fun. So we, we did things proactively. The one core value they came up with, which I thought was brilliant, they came up with it, I led them, but they came up with it, was do the best work of your life. And that was the only one they have. It's the only one. And if you think about it, if Michael Levitt comes in to interview and, said, and we say, well, tell, tell us about the time when you did the best work of your life. And you go, well, I was at this shop that they didn't do very good work, but it's because they, you know, it wasn't very fun. And so we, you know, so a lot of times we kicked off early or whatnot. They know in the first minute you won't fit there because you've schlocked through. That's fine. Uh, what they have to find out if they want to go further, maybe they give you a pass on that and say it was the culture that you were at. They say, well, what if you could des- design the workspace you'd, you'd, you'd play in? They'd say, well, I'd be with highly professional people that want to do this and invent things that have never been done and change the paradigm and they go, ah, this guy wants to do the best work of his life. Perfect. It solves, even at the front end, the hiring problem. Now you've been there 90 days, and let's say you and I are working on the same team and we're struggling, like our team isn't doing very well. We're in, the, we're in this phase or that phase, and we're not doing very well. When, when it's time for a one-on-one or a debrief with our manager, there's only one question they have to ask. So you're struggling with this, and you're having problems here, and here's the challenges. If, if our manager suspects that we're mailing it in, they only have to ask one question. You guys doing the best work of your life? If we can't appropriately answer yes, then it's on us to make a new promise. 
Now, we'll take the converse. Let's say we are doing the best work of our life, and these are super challenging problems we're solving. Then the manager goes, got it. You guys are doing absolutely everything you can. You're working hard. You're using every creative outlet, and you still can't solve the problem. Let's see if we can get you some help. Either way, the culture takes care of anything even remotely looking like motivation because this is not a motivational problem. You, you build the culture so that it's bulletproof. And in this case, these guys are just crushing it on their second one because everybody that works there is loving what they're doing and they're inventing a paradigm in the gaming industry that's never been tried before. So it's super challenging. Everybody that walks in the door and gets hired there knows it's going to be super challenging and they're up for the challenge. And if I walk in and you interview me and I'd like to mail it in, I just won't fit. They'd never hire me. I say, ah, he's a guy that should go work at a more traditional place. They will only take people that say, really, we're going to do a super challenging thing that's never been done before. And I'll have to improve my skills every single day. Yep. You're going to have to do the best work of your life. It's both a command and it's a promise. And that's the easiest way to get out of, as I call it, motivation trap is build the foundational cultural um, platform in such a way that you don't have to try to motivate people because nowhere in there does it say I'm going to walk in every day in a great mood. It just requires me to do the best work of my life. Maybe I'm in a bad mood. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe my washing machine broke and I don't have the $500 to replace it. Or the workman says I have to be home between one o'clock and 5 PM for them to show up to deliver. All of that stuff happens because life happens and it doesn't matter. I'm still required because I promised I signed up for do the best work of my life. And oh, by the way, I want to do the best work of my life. There's, that's the easiest way to solve or avoid having to go down this rat hole of carrot and stick, especially from upper management, uh, carrot and stick motivation. That is such an epic example of organizations that will rise above other organizations that are similar to them. And I, I love the analogy where they are very, very firm on in order to work for this organization, you have to promise that you're going to do the best work of your life. It reminds me, and I was, had a guest on, and it's slipping my mind right now who it was, but basically they were talking, it might have been Dory Clark, and, and she was talking about you know, a client where you know, they would interview you know, C-level organization people so your vps and and whatnot and during the interview process you know they'd go through the normal interviews but on the last interview uh the team or the candidate excuse me was required to wear you know a suit top suit and tie but they had to wear cargo shorts and flip-flops for the last interview and it flushed out a lot of people because they're like, well, why would I do that? Because they want that organization had a culture of, we want you to be flexible. We want you to have fun. We want you to just be silly to certain extents. Yes, you're vice president. So there's certain rules and regulations when it comes to a role like that. But that was one of their stipulations because they wanted people that would come into the culture that would fit. And, you know, in my role and the roles that I've had, um, when I've had the opportunity to, reshape the culture that I inherited, you know, it's a big deal. It's, you know, there's a, a way that I want things to be done for the organization to benefit our clients or patients or, you know, whatever you want to name them. And if, you know, the people that 
aren't in alignment with that culture will either self-select or, you know, in a few occasions, I've had to use a Jack Welch term and dehire them because they weren't uh, the right fit anymore. It doesn't mean they weren't a great employee. They just weren't a, the right fit for this organization anymore. And many of them have moved on and gone on to bigger and better things and better opportunities. Uh, it's, it's never easy to do it, but as an organization and as leaders, you have to make sure that you are protecting the interests of the organization and that do your best work of your life. Wow. I'm going to totally permanently borrow that. Um, that's, a, that's a, that's just a great, great way to go about um, just, you know, laying it on the line and say, this is our command. Here's our marching well, and, orders. And it's a promise on behalf of the company that when you come, we will be prepared. Like we'll have, top-notch equipment and the right atmosphere and the right environment that allows you to do the best. We're not going to have you working um, under duress and then require you to do the best work. It's a promise from us. It's a promise from you. And it's a command for all of us. And oh, by the way, we also acknowledge there will be times we fall flat on that. That's okay. That means we figure out what we need to shift, we retrain, we regroup, we re-promise, and we get back on the horse, and, and we go from there. It's interesting, your, your, your commentary about the, you, know, you had to wear the suit with the flip-flops and, and cargo shorts. It, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest things to do to, sh- to change a culture. In this case, it sounds like you were bringing in something called play, playful or humor or lighthearted. Or, you know, you, you think of um, places that are not that. Um, you're, in the, you're in the medical field. It tends not to be. It tends to be overly serious. Hard to flip that. Very, very hard. But the way to do it is with directives. And if people buy into the directives, and the directive might be something like, um, ha- have fun at work. It's, it's a simple command. Does it mean be a jokester? Nope. But, you know, or it could be something as simple as enjoy your work. Oh, well, enjoying your work versus getting your work done? Very different culturally. Very, very different. So the directives are language matters and what's reflected in the directives matters a lot. So I, I've, I've always liked do your best, do the best work of your life because it's, it also can be inclusive of fun. It could sometimes be shut the door and work heads down because I'm behind. It can, it can handle op, uh, multiple operating modes, but your requirement is in the end, um, by the end of this month, you should be better than you were a month ago because you're doing the best work of your life. It, it's constant improvement. It includes all of those things. That's why it's such a powerful one because it includes all kinds of, you don't have to say all those other ones. They're all subheadings under do the best work of your life no it's it's a perfect one and i i will encourage a lot of the organizations that i deal with to really take a long hard look at that because as you said at at the onset uh, oftentimes you know they 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 have these committee meetings to figure out what the mission vision and values are of the organization and then you ask the board or the employees to recite any of it and no one remembers it unless it's printed on a big billboard in the boardroom and they happen to be looking directly at it because otherwise it's it's something that people aren't living it and breathing it but do the best work of your life i think that's going to stick in people's brains because it's it's just 
it's a command, and as you said, and it's also um, a way for organizations to really put focus on uh, encouraging people, you know, not motivating, but encouraging them to want to do that. Because if you have an employee that doesn't want to do the best work of their life and they're mailing it in, well, then you have to look at that and you go, okay, is this person you know, the right fit for the organization now. They may have been before, maybe not now. We, we yeah, all change. Yeah, let's, let's take the example where I'm the one mailing it in and you have to work with me and we're working together. And let's say we're both in sales. If I'm mailing it in and you want to do the best work of your life, what you're doing is you're saying, let's, let's crush our sales total. And I'm going, you know what? I think we can hit our quota without much effort. Eventually, you'll not want to play with me. And you won't, you won't go rat me out. You'll say, Hey boss, I think, uh, John and I, we've been working together, but I think maybe we do better if we uh, separate it's uh, people will figure it out really quickly because if you really don't want to do the best work of your life, your teammates who do, uh, will politely or not so politely ostracize you because you want, they won't want to be on a team with you. If you're, if you're the one in this case, me, I'm the one mailing it in. Nobody's going to want to play with me because they're going to get in trouble or they're not capable of doing their best work in, of their life while in partnership on a project with me. So it's so it, it, that's why it's, that's why I've always liked it. it. It solves problems proactively because it, it has the system reveal itself at all times. Anybody that's not doing the best work of their life gets exposed. And if you're compassionate, imagine that you're the one not capable of keeping up very hard to be the weak player in a team that's crushing it. So even if you are doing the best work of your life and it's not acceptable or the level of it's not acceptable, even that's a, a reasonable conversation. Hey, is there, we love your attitude. Is there a better place where you can do the best work of your life? Maybe it's not in sales. Maybe it's in marketing. Maybe it's in accounting. Maybe it's in customer. Great. It's an, it's an easy conversation or an easier conversation to have. Because it's still, you don't lower the standard. You just say, let's find a place where you can thrive. Solves the problem proactively. Yeah, and it just, it, it encourages the right culture for an organization. And it sets the tone. And from a leadership standpoint, it just streamlines everything and say, okay, here's the rules that we're going to follow. And it's a rule. You know, do your best work. And it, everything else you know, falls underneath that umbrella and everyone's going to know. And, you know, you, you talk about how, you know, teammates won't necessarily want to work with those other teammates that are mailing in. And the first thing that kind of popped in my mind is those old playground uh, memories as a kid where you didn't want to be the last kid to be picked for dodgeball or anything else. You, you don't want to be one of those people where people are like, I don't want to work with him or her. Uh, because that can really, uh, really can make some things difficult. And, and again, it, it creates the opportunity for that individual to do a couple of different things. One, they can either say, okay, I'm going to quit mailing it in and I'm actually going to put in uh, the professional effort that I need to, or uh, they'll self-select and likely leave the organization. And that's their choice. And it, it, it strengthens the organization when you have uh, accountability built into it where, you know, people are holding each other accountable to do the best work because it benefits everybody when everyone does. 
so the new book, the motivation trap. So what are some of the things um, that you're most proud of, of the book and what are some things you want to share with the audience today about, um, about the book and, and everything that's in it? That's great. Uh, think, thanks for uh, offering that. It's, um, it's the first book. So it was, uh, uh, I guess what I'm most proud of, I didn't know how to write a book. I mean, I, I, I had this vision that you go rent a cabin in the woods, you lock yourself there you, you chain smoke and you drink too much and you stay up all night and you have writer's block and it's excruciating and you're like a tortured artist. And it wasn't that experience at all. Um, it, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed the writing of it. it. It kind of popped out of me pretty well. And when I, but I didn't realize you don't have to write the whole book. <laughs> so, so I didn't realize you generally what you're supposed to do is write like three chapters and then submit it and they get your premise and they see that you can write and they say, yes, we will accept this. Uh, it's a good idea. And now we want you to finish the book. So I wrote the whole thing, not knowing. And I turned it in and the word they, the, I guess what I was proud of, they, they said, you know, you've never written before. And I said, well, I've, I've you know, written my whole life, but just never published. They said, well, it's polished. And I liked the word. I thought polished, that sounds good. Um, and then of course, cause I didn't know the game. They said, well, so now what we're going to do is we're going to, yes, we're going to get this, we're going to get the publishing started. This is great. First, first call, first publisher, which I, I realize now is a, a long shot. That doesn't happen very often. And they said, now we're going to edit it. I said, oh, that's great. Go ahead and edit. Because I'm thinking they're the publisher, they're the editor. Editing is code for, you're going to rewrite every chapter under our tutelage. <laughs> so I, I Pretty much. Yeah. So, I, and I, of course, I didn't know the game. So, rewriting it, I didn't enjoy very much. I didn't have to rewrite everything, but they'd say we want a story that's happier, or we want one that's personal, not business, or we want we want you to re we want you to redo this part because it's you understand what they mean, but we want you to simplify it. And, to, and I didn't care for that too much, but uh, I was happy with what came out. Um, the premise of the book starts right off the bat. I mean, the, the, the question we ask is. You know, why do, why do super smart, talented people oftentimes fall short? And you go, yeah, they are super smart and they're super talented and they fall short. Well, okay. And the book goes on to answer that. Um, partially it's because, or we indict the overuse, not the use, but the overuse of motivation. What I know from working with neuroscience and with clients as well, as we work with real human beings, is that motivation works really, really well in the short term. So if you have, um, if you've got a, if it's the end of the quarter and you've got to hit a, uh, a number, let's say you're selling, it's great. Uh, you're selling cars and you've got to get to a certain number because uh, you're at the end of the quarter. Great. It's really good for that. It's really good for a short-term push. But most organizations don't work on short-term objectives so much. They say we have yearly goals or we have long-term projects or whatnot, motivation doesn't work very well because it doesn't, it doesn't keep the brain enticed very well for long periods of time. So ideally you use motivation as a spark and then hand off to something that's gonna sustain the momentum. And I can give you a perfect example. If you and I both uh, get the idea that we're gonna run a marathon this year, great. If we're really motivated at the beginning, we're gonna do it together. The problem is eventually there's gonna be a day when it's, we have a schedule, we have a, a coach to do this, um, somebody that's helping us through team and training or one of those organizations that says, here's, here's your platform to get up to the, to the point where you can run a marathon. 
invariably there's going to be a day when when you have to do 10 miles and it's 47 degrees and raining outside and you go the only time i can run is before work it's dark it's 47 degrees and there's a there's a drizzle yeah you are now confronted it's you versus your motivation you um you're going to stay home you can bet if you went to vegas and put money on it you're going you're gonna to bet on the idea that you're going to stay home because there's a really good reason for you not to run today. Your knee's a little sore. A cold weather's not going to be good. You might catch cold. It's dark outside. You get hit by a car. There's a thousand reasons not to go. Now we take the same scenario and we say, ah, you're running a marathon and in conjunction with the marathon, you're raising funds for juvenile diabetes. And you've actually been to the hospital and worked with the kids and met them and you actually have a team of kids that's kind of your your cheering squad that's who you're running for you actually have t-shirts that have the six pictures of the six kids that you personally are running for as if your money is going to go to those kids it's not it's going to go to the research now that same day comes it's 47 degrees it's drizzling you've got a sore knee you're not running based on circumstances you're saying you know what those kids go through tough treatment and they have, and they're young, and it's not fair, I'm gonna get my damn miles in because this matters. Now you're working on purpose and meaning and what, you, what some people like to call intrinsic motivation, which I call purpose, um, you'll, you'll run through brick walls because you're intimately connected and viscerally connected to a cause, and you signed up for the cause, as opposed to saying, gosh, I'd like to run a marathon because it's a bucket list thing and it'll be fun. And I can't think of a worse thing to do than run 26 miles. The body, for me, at least my body's not built that way. I get sore after running about five miles. Uh, But some people say it was really great to do. I believe them when they say that. Now, if I were running for kids, maybe my own kids especially, I'd grind out 26 miles. Even if I didn't train well, I would grind out 26 miles. But you'll do it better when you're connected to things that neurologically drive you versus circumstantially drive you. And motivation is good circumstantially, and it's good for short term. You don't train for a marathon short term. You have to train over a period of many months. You better, you better darn well be prepared with something more than, quote, unquote, high motivation if you're going to if you're going to go from couch potato to running 26 miles 6 months from now it's it's you're, you're going to have two you're going to get blisters you're going to get a sore knee you're going to get um tendonitis you're going to have bad weather days you're going to there's a hundred things that are going to confront you if you're going on motivation you're going to lose you're you're going to lose that game yeah and you will also discover body parts that you didn't know you had because they will be hurting so much by the running for sure but 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 apps apps in whether that's weightlifting or running or anything you're gonna you're exactly right yeah yeah so it's you know that and that's that's a great way to summarize the book and and the trap of it is you know when you have a cause or a reason to make a change or to take on a really challenging event or task, uh, it, it's a game changer. It's, you, you actually, there's a reason for it. Um, and when you can connect to that reason, and, and I love the analogy that you gave, um, that is going to get you up and out 
running when it's 47 and rainy and cold and windy. And, you know, it just, you know, just not the ideal situation, but you know that in order for you to run that marathon, you have to train and taking a day off is going to jeopardize potentially your ability to finish the race. And, um, and we, we've talked about through our, the chat today is like, there are days that we all know that we're not a hundred percent, but, you know, show up, filled up and do the best that you can, um, and understand the motivation or, you know, maybe that's not the right word, but you know, the, you know, the drive, um, to, you know, do the best work of your life, run the best race of your life, whatever challenge or event you're, uh, going after, you know, show up, you know, full and ready to, uh, give everything you have, because when you do that, uh, the returns on that are absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause that's, so purpose is a fairly high aspirationally place, a high aspirational place to produce, but the book goes through in order of what I'll call low aspiration, but better than motivation. It goes through tools, more useful, take the same thing. If you just said, I'm going to be in the habit of doing it, like we all, we have habits that we brush our teeth. We have ways that we lock. I bet you lock the door when you leave the house the exact same way every time with your, with your predominant hand and you do it this way and we don't even know we're doing it. Well, you could, you could also do fitness with just being habitual. Um, I started a, I had shoulder surgery nine months ago and I'm, I'm still re-strengthening it. And I'm a, I'm a competitive athlete. My doctor finally cleared me to do push-ups, and I realized I, I could only do one push-up after taking basically a year off. I injured it, I couldn't use it, and then I had surgery. And he said, "You got to take nine months with no weight bearing." So I started at one push-up, and he said, "Here's what I want you to do: I want you every day to do the maximum amount of push-ups you can do until failure." And I started at one. I'm now on day six, and I'm up to four. My only habit I, I'm doing in the last five days, and it, I, it doesn't matter whether I'm in a good mood, I don't have any purpose with it. It's just I, I put it on my daily calendar, max push-ups. You know how long it takes to do four push-ups? About 15 seconds. It's, but it's a habit, and I will get back up to my old strength by being habitual. Am I purpose-driven? No. I want my shoulder to be strong again, but this is just ritualistic. I'm putting my brain to work, which is to take it out of the realm of, do I feel like it? Is my shoulder sore? Do I, do I, am I happy to, no. Get rid of all that. Habits are very low aspirationally, but very powerful thing. You say, you know what? Um, despite what we, we tend to hear, oh, it takes 21 days or it takes 30 days. You know, it actually takes about 67. They've now redone all that based on, because we know more about the brain. 67 days is a long time. But, you know, you get in a week, two, I'm on day five, and I'm up to four push-ups. At this pace, I think in about 45 days, I'll be back up kind of to where I was. Probably well, I had atrophied a lot. Okay. I, I didn't want to do them yesterday because my shoulder was a little sore. I only had to do three or four. wasn't that hard. But you have to do it. Well, habits are, if your team shows up and says, what if we have this habit? That can be connected to producing great results. And it doesn't ever ask, Michael, are you in a good mood when you do this habit? It's just, hey, here's, what, here's one of the habits our team employs. Let's say 
that your team employees have your desk clear before you leave. If that's the kind of organization you want to work in, where, where people are organized and they finish what they, you know, what they were working on at the end of the day and put things away, great. That, that's an aspirationally positive habit, but it has nothing to do. It's not super powerful. It's just recurrent and makes for a good, a better workplace. Habits are a super way to do it. Just, just lower tech, if you will, and lower aspirational. But the, the book's got 10 or 12 different tools you can use, and some are um, very high purpose, and some are just utilitarian. They work really well. Um, they're, be- they're, they're much more functional and more predictable, if you will, than is motivation. No, it's awesome stuff. And this conversation's actually been, like I said, a highlight of my week uh, because it's something that's important to me uh, because I want people to you know, show up in their life, um, you know, really full of life and, you know, having that desire to, to be their best. Cause when they do that, you know, the return on investment is uh, above and beyond anything we could ever, ever desire. So where can people find out more about you, John, and, and get some more information on the book and anything else? Sure. Um, I get that people say, oh, do you have a card? My last name is Hitler, like the infamous. It's got two T's, but it's, uh, it's pronounced the same. So if you Google me, I'm the easiest human being on the planet to Google because most people, as you can imagine, have, have moved away from that name if they had it. So anything, I think the first 10 or 12 Google searches if you type in my name, uh, our, everything about our company, the book is there, all that kind of stuff. So that's the simplest way to find our website, our company, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I'm sure the book is listed there as well. I've seen, I've seen it. Um, that's, uh, it's, with, it's one of the unintended gifts of having a dirt sandwich for a last name uh, is that you do, you do get, enjoy that uh, benefit. Uh, it's an unintended benefit, and I'll take it. There you go. It's, it's, it's maximizing on an opportunity. Yeah. And yeah, oh, yeah. I've yeah. always called it the, the unintended gift of a dirt sandwich. And, there you uh, go. So there you uh, go. there, there, there are usually some gifts in a dirt sandwich. They, they don't taste, you don't taste them, but there's some other ones there yeah. that you look for. There, there's, there's usually some type of nutrient that's beneficial. <laughs> to you. Not, yeah. not, fiber. Maybe there's yeah. just fiber. Yeah. There you go. Definitely. Yeah. And some grains. Yeah. There you go. So John, Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you and, and all the work that you're doing. And an and audience, I highly encourage you to uh, pick up this book because I think it will be eye-opening for you and, and can really uh, change how you approach um, your thoughts and desires when it comes to you know motivation and, and being your best. So, John, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, be well. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.